0: You're listening to Greater LA, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Steve Chiatekis is on vacation this week. I'm Saul Gonzalez, host of KQED's The California Report, filling in. Let's start this new year with a hike. We're at the Portuguese Bend Reserve on the southwest side of the Palos Verdes Peninsula. Miles of trails traverse this hillside area with spectacular views of Catalina and the shimmering blue waters of the Pacific. But there's something else going on here that's far less noticeable and more dangerous. This is one of the largest, fastest moving landslides in North America. That's Rancho Palos Verdes City Manager Ara Maranian. He says all these trails sit on an ancient landslide zone that's about a quarter of a million years old. The slide area was quietly creeping during the many years of drought, but it accelerated after last year's heavy rains. And there's another predicted wet winter ahead, fueled by El Nino. So, can you stop a slow moving landslide? Spoiler alert, no you can't. That's where reporter Susan Ballett picks up the story.
1: For the past few years, I've been hiking these trails several times a week. Normally you'd see little cracks as you walked along, signs of very slow movement. But after the top of the hill got 200% of its normal rainfall last winter, things started to change. My friend and I would walk one trail and turn to each other and say, does this seem steeper to you than a week ago? I think it's steeper. It's not just us.
2: This movement is probably the biggest I've seen in the last 10 years.
1: Bill Lavoie has been hiking Portuguese Bend since even before it became a reserve in 2005.
2: I've seen little cracks, but I've never seen anything that was a foot wide. And you can look way down. And on Ishibashi Trail, there was a section that was missing that was about three feet wide.
1: Lavoie leads groups of Sierra Club hikers through the area. Okay, we're ready. They've changed their routes to avoid the landslide closures. About 60% of the trails in the Portuguese Bend Reserve, the largest reserve here, have been closed because of the recent sliding. Lavoie says where you can really see evidence of the movement is in the neighborhood below.
2: Now, most of those houses down there, they're either on logs, telephone poles that are on their side so that they can move, or on 55-gallon drums, and they periodically haul them back into place.
1: You might remember a few months ago seeing some homes in Rolling Hills estates crumbling into a canyon. That's a couple of ridges over from here, about a mile as the crow flies. That slide isn't related to this landslide complex, as far as geologists can tell, but both are driven by water. What happens is water sinks into a clay layer below the surface. That triggers the land on top of the clay to slide like it's on ball bearings. City manager Ara Moranian says there's been a clear acceleration in the ancient slide area.
3: In the last several months, if you annualize the movement in certain areas, it's about six to eight feet a year.
1: But it wasn't always moving this fast in modern times.
3: The ancient landslide complex was triggered in 1956 when L.A. County was extending the road behind us, Crenshaw Boulevard, to go all the way down to Palace Verdes Drive
1: south. Crews dumped dirt, which put weight on the slide. Some homes in the Portuguese Bend area have traveled 400 to 500 feet since then. That's longer than the length of a football field. Hiker Bill Lavoy:
2: There's a guy that's got a house down here near the Pony Club. And his house literally traveled across the road onto city property.
1: That's presented a whole different problem of how to assess taxes and land ownership. At a recent city council meeting, a neighbor expressed frustration about living in an area that's slowly moving. Nobody wants to buy our properties, and ethically we can't sell our properties. So we're stuck The landslide has caused other problems for homeowners. A geology report prepared for the city recommended that fire trucks no longer use Burma Road, the fire road through the reserve, because they didn't think the road could hold the weight of a fire truck. And when you could hike that road, you definitely noticed what my hiking friend and I dubbed the Leaning Tower of Edison, a power pole that's leaning at a 35 to 40 degree angle as it slowly slides down the hill. It seemed to tilt more and more each time he walked by it. Edison reportedly has halted power to that pole. So can you stop a slide that's been moving for centuries? Moranian says they've asked the city geologist.
3: What can we do immediately to try to mitigate or remediate the movement? And his honest opinion was there's very little that we can do.
1: Two homes in the neighboring Seaview neighborhood have been red tagged because the slumping land started to rip them apart. Others show signs of movement. Another moving part of the ancient landslide has forced the Lloyd Wright designed Wayfarer's Chapel to limit availability of the famous glass chapel to only private events and services. So crews are filling in fissures with dirt and trying to seal them in neighborhoods around and below to try to prevent water from filling them once it rains. Officials have also created a working group with various stakeholders who meet regularly to strategize about the problem. They're considering other measures, but it's not clear what will work and they'd still need to be funded. So that could be years off.
2: Uh, We're gonna go over to the right and we're gonna go up Rattlesnake.
1: In the meantime, as a hiker and geology nerd, it's been amazing to watch a geological process in slow motion right before your eyes. Steve LeCates agrees.
0: When you walk the same trail week after week or year after year, you get sort of used to a certain grade. And then all of a sudden there's a big dip and you're like, oh, wow, you know, this is this is interesting, you know. I found it kind of fascinating because you're like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like the place is alive. It's moving.
1: During the pandemic, these trails became a lifeline for people in the South Bay itching for a break from lockdown. That's how I ended up with constant dirt halos on my socks when the pandemic forced me outside.
0: It's a wonderful place to hike. You go out there in the spring and it's just a sea of yellow, the mustard plants that come out and all this different colors pop up. It's really a really special place.
1: Lakates and other hikers are frustrated by the trail closures, though they understand the city may be worried about liability. Moranian says they're already working on contingency plans for the predicted wet El Nino winter. If
3: it's moving now and it hasn't slowed down and we're going to add more
1: rain and I told you water
3: contributes to the movement, I think a year from now we're we're going to be seeing something very different.
1: But they really don't know what that is. The city is working on a long-term plan to try to both prevent water from seeping into the slide and also extract water from underground such as with pumping wells or by lining canyons. In October, the city declared an emergency and enacted a building moratorium in the slide area. They've asked nearby residents to cut back on landscape watering. The city has been awarded 23 million dollars in FEMA funding to help. But in the end, Moranian says the trails could be closed for potentially years. So until then, the hikers maneuver their way around the closures as homeowners hope the hillside holds. For KCRW, I'm Susan Vallet.
0: Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. Coming up in a few minutes, we'll check in with our man in Orange County, Gustavo Ariano, about the big stories to watch there in 2024. But first, producer Juliana Mayo sits down, as she does from time to time, with a Los Angeles-based author. This one also happens to be a renowned actor. I'm speaking today to David Duchovny. He is an author, a musician, an
4: actor, a director. Is there anything else I should throw in there?
5: No, I'm uh, I'm incapable of doing uh, anything but that, though.
4: We're talking about his new novella, The Reservoir. David Duchovny, thank you so much for talking to me today.
5: Thanks for talking to me today.
4: As I said, I've read all your books in the last couple of weeks, so it's very exciting to get to talk to the mind behind it all.
5: Mm. <laughs> like I said, I, I'm sorry.
4: <laughs> your book takes place during COVID, and we're spending time inside... A perch above Central Park with the main character Ridley. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about him.
5: Well, what was funny about writing The Reservoir for me was I originally envisioned it as a short story because I'd never I'd never written one and I the idea didn't seem to have the scaffolding or the events that would that would hold up a, an entire novel. So I thought it's more like a character study and I just thought you know, I wanted to make fun or satirize <clears throat> kind of like the Wall Street person that buys art and thinks they're an artist or thinks they have a sensitive soul because they made a lot of money and they can put it up on the wall <clears throat> or worse yet, talk about it as an investment. So it kind of started out that way with Ridley. He was early retired did wasn't like a titan of the industry but you know did well enough to retire to central park west and as i continued to write and <clears throat> it was really a, a voyage of discovery for me because i didn't really i i knew the bare bones of what was going to happen i knew he was going to see some lights across the way i knew it was going to be a pandemic rear window kind of a thing and that excited me i thought those elements coming together was going to be interesting uh, but I thought this guy was a jerk at first, you know, and I kind of wanted to make him into a jerk. And then a few pages in, or maybe a little more, I started to, you know, what in- inevitably happens when you write is you start to feel for the characters in a way. You know, it's hard it's hard to maintain a satire. I've never tried to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, I just kind of opened up to this guy. And, you know, I, I didn't make him a hero in any way. I didn't soften his edges or Make him not a jerk, but I also made him, I think, uh, three dimensional as he went on his
4: yeah little I,
5: hero's journey. I
4: definitely though. feel like you you have an affection for this man, even if you do find some of his some of his life loathsome. Yeah, I think that comes across.
5: So that was the, you know, our writers often talk about being surprised. Mm-hmm. You know, like if they're not surprised, then. The reader's not going to be surprised. So that was the biggest surprise to me. I've had other surprises when I've written plot surprises, things mm-hmm. that I never thought were going to happen. Happen.
4: So you're not mapping yeah. stuff out. You're just kind of going. with I the do front. map stuff out. Okay. Generally, but
5: not not really in this one because I thought it was going to be you know fairly short. So mm-hmm. I I kind of had a handle on what was going to happen, which wasn't it wasn't all that much because it really it's like an a, an interior monologue. Uh, inside this guy's head
4: yeah um, and in that in that monologue there's this moment where he that it, that occurs in another one of your books where um, <laughs> <laughs> um, oh,
5: well, hang on a minute
4: <laughs> um, where he kind of pinpoints the moment that uh, a relationship fell apart kind of from great hindsight
5: what happened in the, when did I do that in the other was it the the Bonnie stuff in Bucky fucking Dent yes ah
4: yes we okay. we we have it twice where this this man realizes from a great distance like when it all fell apart and i'm i'm really into i'm into understanding like why you wanted to to go there and what what yeah. that means to you
5: well i think part of that is a literary convention because i'm not sure that that actually is the way life works you know that there's mm. not <clears throat> one moment at least if it's not highly dramatic. Like, you know, I just watched you strangle my dog. I think the relationship is over. <laughs> you know, it's rare that it's something as easy to do as that, you know, wash your hands of that person. Mm. But I'm fascinated with that, obviously, since I, I've done it twice. Um, thanks for pointing that out. <laughs> that, uh, you know, I, I go back to the movie Le May Pre. Do you mm. know that Contempt, that movie? I don't, uh, no. It was shown to me, I was probably in my mid-20s and, and It's kind of, um, I think Bridget Bardot is in it. And um, this couple goes to a weekend with a very kind of masculine, powerful guy. And he kind of insults the husband and he doesn't stick up for himself. And it's like, that's it, Mm -hmm. you know, like for the girl. That Mm -hmm. was it, that moment. And I've always been kind of fascinated with That I don't live that way. I don't like judge people like on a moment like that. But I'm fascinated with the idea of oh, it's a complete revelation of character right in that one little moment.
4: This is also since I'm just hitting you with all the stuff. This is also not the uh, first time there's been a fever dream at the reservoir.
5: Alright, is this almost over? <laughs> this interrogation?
4: I'm just I'm also really into that. that you're uh, you're <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about fever dreams at all the right. reservoir.
5: Well, you know, you write what you know. <clears throat> or you write <laughs> you write what's outside your window in mm-hmm. my case. Well, reservoir was written entirely in my apartment in New York because mm-hmm. we were all locked down at that point. And um I think the Subways you're referring to the kind of uh cocoon old old people orgy <laughs> in, the, in the reservoir <laughs> yes. yeah i don't know where that came from it came from kind of cocoon i don't know if you remember that of but course, they had like a, yeah. a water source that was giving them youth mm-hmm. and life and, and um it's similar you know like an alien or a religious or a folktale kind of uh, source of youth and life to these um, older people uh, in the reservoir And uh, I think I described them as, they're having sex as being like gray eels slithering over one (laughs) another, which I should probably be canceled for. (laughs) Um, But, uh, yeah, so yeah, that was a fever dream of the daughter, kind of imagining that her dad was out there uh, living his best life in an orgy in the middle of the reservoir at the age of, in his 80s or whatever he was in. (laughs) So, um, yes, guilty uh yeah
4: (laughs) i won't do it again i know i I love it (laughs) um i really enjoy that actually you credit people who who do your who do research for you in your books i think a lot of people pretend they do the whole damn thing
5: i think you can pretend now because of uh you know google right i mean uh, but a good researcher can actually is better than google because they can Here's, their, here's our AI discussion. You know, they can kind of imaginatively, if they're good at it and they're inspired and they're they're working with you, they can kind of read you what you, you know, read your intention and, and start researching in areas that you might have not have asked to look at. And then you go, oh my God, there it is. Wow.
4: You bring up A Death in Venice at the end of the book, speaking of yeah. acknowledgements and talk about its import to you and how you want it to be kind of in conversation with it. It also comes up a little bit in Bucky fucking Dent. So clearly this is... Yeah. Damn it. (laughs) So this is a a piece that clearly means... How does it come up in Bucky? Oh, he talks about how he's having like a death in Venice moment or something, his dad.
5: Uh, The dad is? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, these are stories that, that, that shaped my consciousness, our literary consciousness and therefore consciousness in many ways. So they're really touchstones for me. You know, I don't walk around in my life thinking Death and Venice, but sometimes if, if I write my way into a pandemic story, <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see how I'm, or, or an old man, you know, thinking about falling in love at a very old age or, or sex at a very old age, then I don't see how I'm going to avoid it. And in, in Bucky Fucking Dan, it's the latter, and in the reservoir, it's the former.
4: Yeah, just yeah, curious about how, how much meaning it holds for you. Maybe wh- when did you read it for the first time?
5: I think high school. I can envision the paperback. It's Death in Venice and other stories. Tonio Kroger was another story in that. Mm. I'm not sure I went back to read it. I don't think I've read it again. Maybe since then, it's just like
4: just made a you know, mark. some
5: books just they take up a place and they never let it go.
4: I see that you thank Chris Carter in a number of your books, and I'm really interested in how that creative relationship works for you. Is he one of your first readers? You know, he is the creator of X-Files, um, and it's just really interesting to me that you've maintained that relationship and, and that he is a part of your literary uh, world as well as your acting world.
5: Yeah. He is. He, he has been an early reader, I think, not every book, but a few of them, mm-hmm. and I think what I, I don't know if I spell it out um, in any of the acknowledgements or the, the the thanks pages in the book. But really what happened to me was when I, when I started working on The X-Files, I had, I had really come from, you know, thinking of myself as a novelist or a poet or whatever I was. And now I was an actor and I was on this show that was very plot driven because that's what drama is. It's what happens. It's not really what's thought you know mm-hmm. and so <clears throat> at first I might have scoffed at like oh uh, yeah it's got like where's where's, where's where, the, where the where the where's the beautiful writing you know is this is beautiful plotting you know
2: mm-hmm.
5: and then I just fell in love with plot you know I fell you know I went back to like like graduate school had like taken me beyond reading for what happens, which is, you know, what you do, you, you know, you try and get underneath a book when you're in graduate school. And I kind of lost the joy of just that page turning. Oh my God. You know, the soap opera aspect of things. Mm -hmm. And, uh, the X-Files really rejuvenated my love for, for the drama within, within the written word, you know, not just the the deconstruction of it, you know, which is kind of what was hot when I was in graduate school.
4: I feel like it, I don't know, maybe it gives you a different look at structure as well. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. Well, you know, trying to write,
5: because <clears throat> I, I ended up writing some teleplays for X-Files, and I've, I've written scripts, and a couple of the books actually started as scripts, so they, they naturally have a three-act structure, and X-File would have a, a prologue, mm-hmm. you know, which would play before the credits. And which is usually like mm, three or four pages, something happens, something dramatic happens. It's going to be the case, whatever it is. And then you got three acts after that. I don't think my novels follow that structure, but they, they definitely have a three, I think they probably have three act structures.
4: Does the reservoir look like it's going to have a life beyond the page?
5: Speaking of. It's possible. I mean, I can, I can really see it as a, an independent feature.
4: Yeah. Um, what does Ridley look like to you?
5: Uh, probably me because, uh, <laughs> you know, I'd like to do it. Oh, but cool. if I didn't do it, Ridley would look, uh, I don't know what he'd look like if I didn't do it. He'd look like whoever was, uh, you know, hot at the time that could get me the financing. That's
4: what look like. <laughs> Your publisher sent me a new copy of The Reservoir in paperback, which is why we're talking today. And there is um, a short story in there called The Scare Owl, and I wonder if you could tease a little bit of it. We don't want to give the whole thing away, but, you know, give us a little taste of The Scare Owl.
5: If uh, the reservoir is like me entering into a world of Thomas Mann or Borges or uh, Hawthorne, which are the stories that I reference in the afterward, Mm -hmm. that's not childhood, but that's my early, that's, that's the, you know that's my education as we've been talking about. It's it's my, I'm having a conversation with, they started the conversation with me when I was in high school and like I'm responding. It's taken me a while, but I'm responding. And the Scare Owl is even younger than that, I think. It, it's really harkening back to Pinocchio, which is a story that I, It's it seems so silly, but it's something that I wrote an x file about a baseball player once who was an alien who, and baseball made him a human. You know, I I'm, I'm fascinated with these ideas of, of what love can, how love can transform a nature. Mm -hmm. And the scare owl is in that vein of a, of an owl. And again, it's an, an animal fable, like Holy Cow was, an owl that uh, transforms himself through intention, and love and loss, really. So all these stories, to me, the Unnatural, which is the X-Files episode, uh, I'm very proud of it as a story, and the Scare Owl. I really like reworkings of, I'd say, Pinocchio, which I'm sure is a reworking of, you know, it's at the heart of what it is to be human. Is like we ask ourselves what makes us human, and that's what Pinocchio is. And so I'm sure there's many. If you, if you interrogated lots of cultures, you'd probably get lots of Pinocchio-type stories.
4: There's a little moment in The Scare Owl where you write, in fact, you could say that soundlessness was the owl's best weapon. Soundlessness was his deepest language. And I just found that so lovely.
5: Yeah. This story came about because I have, I have a lot of glass in my house, and sometimes birds will fly into it, and it's very distressing to me. And I put things up to try and let the birds know that it's not clear air they're looking at. And one of the things I put up is a ceramic owl, you know, above mm-hmm. the, uh, on the roof. And it works for like a week. And, you know, after a week, they're like sitting on the owl.
4: You know, they, <laughs> they're they onto you.
5: <laughs> but I also just love this image or this archetype of of being that, that makes its living being scary, being, uh, protecting and yet hated, you know? So all those things were kind of rolling around my head when I went to write that one.
4: Dear Duchovny, it has been a real treat to get to spend some time with you today and to talk. Thank you so much.
5: Thank you.
0: Moving on now with Greater LA from KCRW, I'm Saul Gonzalez in for Steve It's a new year, and that means new stories that can determine the future of Orange County. 2024 is, of course, an election year, and a closely contested congressional race in the O.C. could be all important in determining the political makeup of the House of Representatives. Our own Orange County Oracle, Gustavo Ariano, joins us now to talk more about this race and other stories to watch in O.C. in 2024. Hey, Gustavo, and Happy New Year, man. Well, that's all. So, Katie Porter is running to replace Diane Feinstein in the U.S. Senate. We all know that. Her Irvine-area congressional seat then has to be filled. Tell us about the candidates who want the job.
6: Yeah, Katie Porter, remember, barely won in 2022. It was very, very close. And so the person who nearly beat her, former OC GOP chair Scott Baugh, he's running for that seat again. The big fight right now is who is going to probably pass on to the number two slot for the general election on the Democrat side. Right now you have State Senator Dave Min going up against uh, Joanna Weiss, who was the founder of this progressive organization that helped to make Orange County blue over the past couple of years. So right now, They're just swinging at each other nonstop. Meanwhile, Scott Baugh is sort of kicking back, raising a lot of funds. And whoever's going to win between men and Wise, it's going to be a battle royale. Because remember, in 2018, Orange County's congressional delegation turned all blue for the first time ever. Then Republicans were able to win back two more seats. And so, you know, they want yet another seat in Orange County.
0: Hmm. So, you know, when it comes to that seat or other congressional seats that have flipped in Orange County at this moment, things could change, of course. But at this moment, where do you see things leaning?
6: Oh, this one. This one is really, really hard because. Katie was very popular, even though she barely won last time. The Republicans, when they had that existential embarrassment of 2018 of the congressional districts turning blue, they have slowly but surely planned for this moment. I mean, you had the two uh, two other seats that are currently run by or held by Republicans by Young Kim and Michelle Steele. Those are locks that they there is not expected to be any uh, contest there whatsoever. So the Republicans are going to throw everything possible. It's a presidential year. So the one thing that District 47, we're talking about the 47th Congressional District, the one thing that Democrats have for them is that Orange County has never gone with Donald Trump. So if Donald Trump is the Republican nominee yet again, there is no guarantee that the conservatives here are necessarily going to either vote for Trump or or even go for uh, Scott Ba.
0: Hmm. Let's turn to another issue. Uh, Climate change, of course, a huge topic all over the planet, including Orange County. What's happening there, especially in coastal communities?
6: Oh, yeah. The big story of last year was just the continued coastal erosion all the way down in South Orange County. So we're talking about San Clemente, a little bit of Capistrano Beach. For months, the Pacific Surf Liner, the Amtrak train that can take you from Union Station all the way down to San Diego, it was shut down because they had to secure the the tracks so they wouldn't slide into the sea. And this is something that has been affecting coastal communities in Orange County now Really, for decades, like now it's a regular occurrence where you have waves or the tide going up and flooding streets. So finally, these cities are saying, "Okay, we admit it. We have a problem here.
0: Yeah. And I also know there's right a proposal to move the tracks literally miles inland from the coastal route.
6: Oh, that would be billions of dollars. And
0: that's not something anyone wants to do
6: but here's the reality the the coastline in orange county it's a multi-billion dollar revenue generator for those cities and if the coast keeps slowly but surely coming in at a certain point these communities are going to have to figure out and i know this is something that's happened in other places in california what do they call managed retreat where you have to go inland and if that were to happen the orange county that we know wouldn't be existing anymore
0: OK, I want to talk about one Orange County city in particular, and that's Huntington Beach, man. That <laughs> community always seems to be in the news because of its conservative city council majority. What's like one or two big issues that you we expect to see a lot of coming out of Huntington Beach in 2024?
6: Well, Huntington Beach, of course, has a 4 3 city council majority by not just conservatives, but arch conservatives who are proud to vote lockstep. For instance, right now, there's a lawsuit that the city has against the state of California over housing mandates. Uh, Huntington Beach insists it's Mayberry, doesn't need any more housing, definitely does not have to turn into a liberal enclave like Los Angeles. The other interesting vote that the council has put for March for the primary is asking the voters in Huntington Beach whether they want to enact voter ID laws. So in other words, where you'd have to show identification. If you're to vote already, California attorney general, Rob Bonta said, you better watch it with that. I'm going to sue you. I'll probably sue you the way the city has fought with California in the past, but the majority, they love that. They love to be seen as the bad
0: people by all these liberals because liberals don't belong in Huntington beach. According to them. All right, we're going to end on sports. We all know that Shohei Itani is moved from the angels right up the freeway to the Dodgers, So what does that mean for the Angels? What is their post-Atani future looking like in this coming season? It looks very,
6: very grim. Uh, You have, of course, Mike Trout, who's getting older and getting more and more injured. There's this really sad billboard of him on the five freeway south near the city of Commerce where, you know, it's just a picture of him. He's not smiling at all. And it's like, oh, you know, buy tickets for the Angels. No one wants to buy tickets for the Angels this season. Even the most diehard fans, they're just waiting for Arte Moreno to finally sell. When he announced that he was going to sell, what was it? At 2022, everyone rejoiced at the beginning of 23, said, nope, I want to keep it. So, Arte, I'm not an Angels fan, but my cousins are. My brother my sister are. They're begging you, please sell.
0: All right. That was Gustavo Ariano, columnist for the LA Times with the Orange County Stories to Watch in 2024. Thanks, Gustavo. Gracias. And that is it for us today. What's up tomorrow? Looking for love? A feminist comic thinks a game show she's embedded might be the way to find it. And with Southern California traffic back to full force after the pandemic, will we ever find a solution to our transportation woes with new tech or is it all a pipe dream? You can check out the show online anytime at kcrw.com slash GLA. You can also share feedback and story ideas there. That's kcrw.com slash GLA. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarno, Phil Richards, Amy Tong, Carlos Ramirez, Christine Camido, Michael Fogel, and Christian Bordal all made today's show possible. I'm your guest host, Saul Gonzalez. Thanks so much for listening and see you tomorrow.